The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, as you know, it's Labor Day weekend, and I think since we, most of us spend most of our our time and our life in that sphere, I think it's good to be reminded, what does the Bible say about work? Because um, I think bumper stickers often succinctly communicate worldviews, and sometimes humorously, um, some of these bumper stickers uh, can speak a lot and uh, of not what we're wanting to communicate. But just think about a couple of these before we look at our text. Here we are, here's a bumper sticker for you, retired. No more worry, no more hurry, no more boss. I'm not lazy, I just don't like to work. Hard work may not kill me, but why take a chance? Work fascinates me, I can sit and watch it for hours. I'd rather be fishing, I'd rather be flying, I'd rather be sailing. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. I pretend to work, they pretend to pay me. Work. Colon, it isn't just for sleeping anymore. I work and pay taxes so wealthy people don't have to. Work harder, colon, millions of welfare, millions on welfare depend on you. A wife and a steady job has ruined many a good hunter. And last but not least, I had a life, but my job ate it. Well, does anybody know what TGIM is? How about TGIF? Thank God it's Friday, but isn't it weird you don't ever hear TGIM? That thank God it's Monday. And is work something we do to make a living, to provide for our family, put bread on the table, or is it something sacred? Is there something sacred about my job, my employment, my work that God has given me to do? Well, let's go back to the beginning and consider what God says all the way back at Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. <clears throat> Excuse me. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. I'm sorry, that's verse 24, 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man. <clears throat> in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And jumping down to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then again, verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now I purposely skipped some verses in there because what you see is that these three creation ordinances of marriage, the Sabbath, and work or employment, they're so intertwined. And I am just trying to focus on this narrow section mainly of work and, and a little bit about rest. But I'm not, this isn't meant to be a marriage uh, message per se, and so that's why I'm just focusing in on that. But, but they're so intertwined. I mean, part of being in his image is he made us male and female, and obviously the whole command to uh, procreate and to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, uh, is something that's done in the context of marriage. And so he gives the gift of marriage, and then he's given man this uh, uh, incredible calling to cultivate, to work, and uh, to keep uh, the garden. And so we want to try and focus on, okay, what might that have bearing for us today? And I want to give you kind of five C's to think about. And it's the context, the conundrum, calling or your calling, contentment, and a conclusion. And we'll kind of walk through the creation and then the fall. But first of all, we have a context here. And the context is, this is before sin has ever entered the world. This is in paradise. This is in the garden. And we see that man is the crown of God's creation. He's the apex of it all. He's the pinnacle. He's the climax of the creation week. And after every day, God makes things and he says it's good. But then when he gets to man and now he creates man, then he says it's very good. And we see that we are given this noble calling to work and to keep his creation. Now, as one commentator put it, the first three days, God creates realms. We have the heavens, the skies and the water, and then the earth. But on the second three days, he fills each realm with inhabitants, sun, moon, and stars, and birds, fish, animals, and humans. So the word subdue indicates that even in the original unfallen form, God made the world to need work. He made it such that even he had to work for it to become what it designed it to be, to bring forth all of its riches and potential. It's no coincidence that in Genesis 1 verse 28, God tells us to follow him in doing the same things that he's been doing. Because what did God do? Filling and subduing. And, he, and where things are empty, all the way back at, at Genesis 1, verse 2, God fills them. And we see that's what he does after the first three days as he begins to fill. What does he, now what does he put us to do on the earth to fill? And, and so work is, is prior to the fall into sin. And we see that Adam has certain things that he's doing here in the garden. He's a farmer. He's working the garden. He's a park ranger. He's keeping, the, he's keeping and guarding the garden. And he's making sure nobody eats of the forbidden fruit. And he's also a scientist who's naming all of the animals. And we can say, truly, life was good in the neighborhood. All is, all is well in the garden as things begin. And 
as James, James K.A. Smith in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, he says, God sets humanity and creation as his image bearer. It evokes images of a sort of priestly ambassador of the creation. And he says, for just as no pagan temple in the ancient Near East would be complete without the installation of the cult image of the deity to whom the temple was dedicated, so creation in Genesis 1 is not complete or very good until God creates humanity on the sixth day as the Imago Dei, the image of God, in order to represent and mediate the divine presence on earth. But in this case, it is creation that is the sanctuary and humanity is commissioned to liturgical service in the cosmic sanctuary to take up the task of being God's image bearers, both cultural work and cultic work. It is to be both prince and princess and to be priest. The very reason we are gathered for worship under the cross is because of humanity's fundamental failure to carry out the task and mission of being in the image of God. And so God has given these, these three creation ordinances that are good. They're good before the fall into sin, and of course they continue after the fall into sin, and they continue in this redemptive, uh, in redemption as well. Now, we, these creation ordinances of work, marriage, and Sabbath, which one will not be in heaven? Marriage, because Jesus tells us that we will not be marrying in heaven. But... We will work. We will continue to work and we will rest. But just, you know, Adam and Eve are not floating on a harp here in Genesis 1. They are working. Work is a gift of God, not a punishment for sin. That's pretty important to get into, into, our, into our heads. And so he's given these, the very first command of the Bible is not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That doesn't come till chapter 2. There's the first five commands of the Bible, the first five imperatives. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and every living creature that moves on the earth. So it's important for us to, to recognize, as Tim Keller says, work did not come in after a golden age of leisure. <laughs> okay. We've always been working when we were placed in the garden. And just as, you know, um, we're made as image bearers of God. And even though when God rested on the seventh day, he doesn't rest. I mean, he rests from his work of creation, but now he's doing the work of providence. So it's not like, you know, God all of a sudden becomes a deist. And he, he, on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, he's a deist and he just lets things, you know, Jesus said, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working, John 5, 17. And so he's given us these responsibilities. So he gives Adam the responsibility to name all the animals. And the naming of the animals in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 19, is an invitation to enter into his creativity. I mean, why didn't God just name the animals? I mean, he could have. After, Genesis, after all, in Genesis 1, God names Name, uh, names things like calling the light day. He calls the darkness night. So he's clearly capable of, of naming the animals, yet he invites us to continue in the work of developing creation to develop all the capacities of human and physical nature to build a civilization that glorifies him. And through our work, we bring order out of chaos, create new entities, and as Keller says, we exploit the patterns of creation and interweave the human community, whether splicing a gene or doing brain surgery or collecting the rubbish or painting a picture, 
our work further develops, maintains, or repairs the fabric of the world. And when we do this, we are connecting our work to God's work. And imagine, you know, as Keller says, what would happen if all of a sudden everybody just quit working? What would happen? He says civilized life would quickly melt away. Um, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, he says, food vanishes from the shelves, gas dries up at the pump, streets are no longer patrolled, fires burn themselves out, communication and transportation services end, utilities go dead, those who survive are all soon huddled around campfires, sleeping in caves, clothed in raw animal hides. The difference between a wilderness and culture is simply work. There, there may be no better way to love your neighbor than to work. And isn't that what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4? Where he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is, and indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you, may, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Be a good neighbor and love your neighbor. Now, as we think through, I mean, that's what God set up in the context before the fall. But then we have this conundrum. And the conundrum, I don't want to just simply talk about the fall into sin. And, and certainly there is now we see that, that there is a frustration to our work. There is no perfect job. And even the best of jobs, you can expect frustration to be built into it. There's going to be a futility. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be, you know, the, the thorns and the thistles. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be conflict. But it's still good, just as the same is true as marriage. And now marriage is complicated as well because of the fall into sin. But the conundrum that I want to talk about is this idea of uh, maybe expressed uh, beginning with Your Work Matters by God, which is a book years ago that was, came out by Doug Sherman and William Hendricks. And he lays out these false dichotomies. And here are the four false dichotomies. Number one, God is more interested in the soul than in the body. Therefore, your body's not all that important, at least in comparison with your soul. We kind of subtly buy into that. Number two, the things of eternity are more important than the things of time. So what I do now is really not all that important. We kind of subtly buy into that. Number three, life divides into, into two categories, the sacred and the secular. And number four, because of the nature of their work, ministers and other clergy are more important to God's program than the laity. And so that's kind of the, the four, you know, false dichotomies of the conundrum. And I, first, I think we should say, aren't we glad that Beethoven and Handel and Bach didn't quite quit writing music to be evangelist? And Bach would sign all of his music with three initials, S-D-G, right? Sola Deo Gloria. And aren't we glad that Copernicus and Galileo and Bacon and Kepler and Faraday and Newton and Pascal, they kept at their science rather than becoming monks or missionaries, thinking that that would be much better for them? Aren't we glad that William Wilberforce listened to John Newton's advice to stay where you are? God will use you there in politics. And the grace of God was with him to help end the horrific slave trade in England. 
Aren't we glad he didn't buy into this conundrum? Well, how do we get into this subtle, sacred, secular dichotomy, and how do we get out of it? Well, it goes all the way back to Eusebius, early church father, bishop, church historian, third and fourth century, and he argued that Christ gave two ways of life to the church. One's the perfect life, and the other was the permitted the perfect life is spiritual, dedicated to contemplation, reserved for priests, monks, and nuns. And the permitted life is the secular, dedicated to action and open to such tasks as soldiering, governing, farming, trading, and raising families. And that kind of trajectory set the church moving in an unhealthy dichotomy. And then you take on Augustine and Aquinas, and they were big into praising the work of farmers and craftsmen and merchants, but they always ele elevated the contemplative life over the active life, being products of their environment and culture, which was very much valued in their culture. The active life was depicted as second class, or what we might call the middle class, a matter of necessity, whereas the contemplative life was first class, a matter of freedom. And in short, Aquinas wrote that the life of contemplation was simply better than the life of action. Well, on comes Martin Luther to the scene as the Reformation is beginning, and he's going to blast some pretty loud trumpet notes into all of this. And he was very strong on the uh, priesthood of all believers. But what he meant by that was not just that, uh, you know, everybody can do church work, but it was that all of your work is sacred. That was a lot of what he meant by the priesthood of all believers. And he says this, the works of monks and priests, however holy and ardent as they, they be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. Indeed, the menial housework of a manservant or maidservant is often more acceptable to God than all, the, than all the fastings and other works of a monk or a priest. And you're probably wondering, where, where am I going with all this? I mean, do you think this is at all relevant to us? I mean, just, just look at the prayer request in the bulletin. What do we pray for? I mean, they're important, but what do we pray for? We pray for missionaries. And then you look at the very back of the bulletin and who, who gets prayed for? You have the names of the staff, the elders, the deacons, and the missionaries. They're the important people. That's who we pray for. And what about if you work in the public school? You work as a nurse. You're an attorney. You're a lawyer. Is that just considered, well, make a lot of money and give it so that the missionaries can do the better work while you do the menial second-class work. I mean, I think the church is still in some captivity that we should be praying that all of the work is meaningful. You say, well, I'm just a mailman. Well, I've seen some mailmen do some, mailmen do some incredible things. They're often the best police officer of a, of a neighborhood, the best doing security, best warning people about somebody dangerous. I know a mailman that, that rescued my aunt because her identity was stolen when her husband died, and they instantly were, were shipping all the stuff to a different address, and were going to exploit it and take all the money from her, but the mailman caught it in the mail and reported it. So every job is important, and it's not just the missionary. Now, it's important that we pray for our missionaries and we want the gospel to go out to the ends of the world. But when they get there, guess what they're doing? 
They're trying to set up environments so that the people can live functionally by themselves. And how do they do that? They have to have this thing called a job. They have to be able to have an economy that works and not be, in, and not be completely dependent on the church from another country. And so it's just trying to, to see God's work of, of what he's done in the garden and set Adam and Eve to do. That's what we're trying to do all around the world to the glory of God. And how do we do that Christianly? And this is what Luther attacks. So in the Christian nobility, he, he wrote this address called To the Christian Nobility of the German Nature. And he says, it is pure invention or fiction that popes, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are often called the temporal estate. He said, this is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy. You can just see Luther getting all animated. Yet no one need be intimidated by it, and that for this reason, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. There is no difference among them except that of office. We're all part of this royal priesthood, not just the people that are in full-time Christian ministry. It's important because when I see people all of a sudden get excited about Jesus over the years, I've had so many times, if I had a dollar for every time somebody came to me and they got excited for Jesus and they wanted to get out of what they're doing and they want to go into ministry because now I want, I want my work to count. I want it to be, I want to do something important with my life. And I have to steer them back and say, well, and start with the Spurgeon advice. Spurgeon's advice to people that are interested in ministry is if you can do anything else, do it. If you can do anything else, do it. Because his point was, are you really called to ministry? And it's, the other areas are very, very important. And people are able to witness and do things in different spheres that I will never be able to do. Think about this. The very first person that's filled with the Spirit of God in the Bible. In Exodus 31, we're told about who that person is. The first person filled with the, spirits of, the Spirit of God, were, it was a craftsman. These are blue-collar workers used of God to design God's tabernacle precisely the way God would have it skillfully made. They were workers. This is what the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 31. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of her, son of her of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And then he calls out another guy as well, and he and they are called and equipped and filled with the Spirit of God, not to be the, for the task of missionary not to be an evangelist, not to be a pastor or teacher, but they're filled with the Spirit of God to use their hands skillfully to make a structure. Is that okay? You know it's okay because this is, this is the Bible. And so we should be okay if our children want to use their hands rather than just go off and, and do something out. They're all important. The question is where, where are we gifted? Think about this. This is where... If you think through the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and some of this is very helpful in borrowing from Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor. But he says, consider the three books. First book of Ezra, you got a minister, he's a teacher of the word. The Jews need to be reacquainted with the Bible so their lives could be shaped by what God said. 
But then you have the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is all about an urban planner and a developer who uses management skills to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and reinstate stability so that the economic and civic life began to flourish again. That's Nehemiah. Then you have the book of Esther about a woman with power in the civil government working against racial injustice. So here you have male and female, lay and clergy. You have people working for spiritual maturity, economic flourishing, and better public po- policy in cultures that were defined and valued, defined and valued these ideas differently from the Jews. And God was using them all. So then you ask a question. Why do we elevate Ezra work over Nehemiah work and Esther work? You see, they're all important. And so to continue to kind of blast the trumpet of this um, conundrum, Dorothy Sayers wrote an essay in 1942 called Why Work? And I would say if you haven't read it, I would say it's one of the most important things to read of like 10-page articles. Like if you haven't read The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis and this, like read it. You can just go online. It's, it's, such, it's such a classic piece of gem of a work. She's a Catholic writer, but she, she's really taken the church to task. And she says, has, in nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But it is astonishing, she says. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this. The very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. I love it. And then she goes on and she talks about this play that she did. And that in her and somebody else directed, and there was these four really tall guys that were the angels. And somebody asked, well, well, did you choose the angels for their moral values? And she says, well, we first wanted to see, you know, are they over six feet tall from tail from the top of the tail to the tip of their feet like there's the costume they're wearing they had to be over six feet tall they had to be incredibly strong to hold up the weight of this costume and they had to be able to stand still for like two and a half hours then when they had speaking parts they needed to be able to speak clearly and they had to have you know they were and they had to be fairly decent actors and then she you know she lists a couple other things it says lastly we would consider the moral values, you know, that you can't show up drunk, you know, because the play has to go on. But, but to ask that first, she, and then she just rails on like, there are Christian things where they, they, they choose the actors first based on their moral underpinnings and values, and they make bad movies, bad poetry, bad books. And, and you're reading, you know, I just saw a movie just this weekend. It was so unbelievably cheesy because the acting was horrifying and the script writing was horrible. It was one of these cheesy movies on a wing and a prayer. Some of you may have seen it, but I mean, it was, it was like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm getting, it, it, there's a reason Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 17%, okay? It was bad because they chose that first instead of doing good work. If you're going to say you're a Christian plumber, what's most important? The second point, be a great plumber. 
then be Christian. Because you, of course you've got to be Christian, but if you're going to tell people that you're this Christian accountant, you better do great accounting work because otherwise you're undermining everything that you've said with the first word. So it's important that we do our work with excellence. And that's what I tell you know, people. That it's like, you know, how can, we, how can we be a good teacher right now in a difficult environment? And, and, and we're going to be a great teacher. Love kids. Be, be great at what you're doing. God has gifted you to do certain things. Years ago, I had a friend of mine that he was a youth pastor, and he wanted to do tree work. He was a very talented arborist, but his job was, to, was in the church. And so he went to another pastor in the area, and I thought the pastor gave him great advice as he was contemplating, I really would like to do trees. And so the pastor asked him, all right, I have a tree that's over my house, and it could fall and damage my house. Do you feel confident that you could drop the tree and not destroy my house, not destroy my shed or my garden, but drop it just as good as anybody else and actually compete with their price and that you would feel great about doing it? And he said, yes. And the pastor said, then go and do it to the glory of God. And if God would have you do that, pray a lot. Because that's a difficult work. But he did a great job. I got to work with him for a summer, and he was quite a gifted um, worker. You know, I mean, you think about like when Captain Sully lost both engines, and he takes off, and he's, you know, and he says, I'm flying the Hudson, you know, as they're trying to get him back to Teterboro or reroute him over to Teterboro, and he's just not going to make it. Flying the Hudson. And the people on the plane, in in the back of this plane, do you think they're praying, I hope that he's a Christian? Like, do you you think anybody's praying that? I hope he's a Christian. Like, that would be nice too, but the first thing they're praying is, I hope we have a really good pilot for such a time as this, that this pilot understands basic dynamics that this plane could easily stall, and we got to come in hot, and at the very last second, pull it up so that the plane hits on the back third, not the front third, or we're all history. You know, and you're, you know, that's what you're praying for, right? And sure enough, this guy saves all the people on the plane because he does good work. And so what God has put you in your workplace to do is to do good work, to do it with excellence. Because when the going gets hard and it gets real messy, you need qualified people who are skilled to do their job, to provide and to protect. And often and sometimes they save whole departments in doing so. Now, think about this idea of calling as we move on from the conundrum. We see all work is, is, is sacred, but the calling is interesting when it's a calling for Adam and Eve where they're given this responsibility, but the Apostle Paul, when people are coming to Jesus in the book of Corinth, or he writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians seven seventeen, he says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Just think about that verse. Because Paul's using these big words like calling and assigned, and he isn't speaking anything about what they're called to do in the church. He's referring to their calling in everything but the church. He's referring to their status with their, their, their uh, marital status, their job and their social sta- station, whether they're free or not. 
and, whether, and, and in, their, in their job that they've been given and in their marriage. And he's saying, stay where you are. Blossom where you're planted. And so when you think about, like, what is my calling? And young people are, are working that out. And, uh, you know, you're trying to figure out, well, what, what should I do with my life? And I know a lot of you probably feel like, some of you may feel like, man, I just love my job. I'm so satisfied. And others are like, this is really difficult. Pray for me. And there's kind of this, a couple things about calling. Well, I mean, the Puritans would say, find whatever you can do to help mankind the most and sin the least in the process. So if you can find a job where you can help mankind the most with the skills, gifts, and talents that he's given to you and sin the least, go and do it. But Os Guinness puts an intersection together. And his intersection, his book Calling is, find work that your heart enjoys but also work that the Lord has equipped you with skills to do. But the big part of the opportunity, or the big part of what's missing in that intersection is opportunity. There's providential opportunity. You know, I just spent time with my four close friends from college, and we hadn't seen each other in 28 years, and so as we're just spending lots of time catching up, they're all in different places. And, and Opportunities have come and opportunities have gone. Two of them, two out of the four don't have work right now. One of them, his strength has been sapped and he has some type of autoimmune disease. And it's like he said, it's like somebody took out the 100 watt light bulb and put in a 40. And he was a missionary in Taiwan and now he's, he's ministering to his parents and he's back in the bedroom that he grew up in. And it's very hard for him. But providentially he's hindered. And so all of a sudden, how does this make sense? And then I got another friend that um, he was on a, a contract and he's working at a uh, nuclear uh, power plant. And he's a smart guy and he's figured out a lot of how to do it himself, but his contract is up. And now he's on the hook for the first $2,400 of every paycheck goes to his ex-wife. And even though he wasn't the one who cheated in the marriage, he didn't fight it, and it's South Carolina, and it's, he's got a raw deal for the rest of his life. So he's struggling with, okay, what's the opportunity? What can I do for work? Because I've got, I can't just go work at Home, Home Depot or Lowe's. I've got to come up with $2,400 off the bat to go to my ex-wife. Life is hard. Then I got another friend that he greatly struggled right out of college. He majored in youth ministry kind of hard to find a job in youth ministry. He was selling air filters and water filters. He sold, I think, three of them. And two, I think, were to his dad. And one was to our house, which my friend ruined by smoking into it, which is a hilarious story we still laugh about, destroy that air filter. But, and he did HVAC for a little bit with his future father-in-law, and he's six foot five. Six foot five people don't do real well in HVAC. He's 240 pounds, I mean, at least. Not a good place for him. Well, he's now the, he is now a CEO of a, uh, S&P, uh, this, this company, which he didn't even tell us about. He's with us the whole weekend, and here you've got you know, 500, country, 500 companies in the S&P, and he's over one of them, he's a CEO. He's made it. He was a youth ministry major, you know? But like, he figured out leadership and he just started to blossom. And you know what? He didn't even tell us about his job. 
he just he wrote us a nice thank you letter, handwritten letter, like, oh, this is what this is what people do that 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 are that have made it. You know, they just care about other people. He was so meek and just focused on others. He didn't draw attention to himself. And my other friend, this guy could sell. You know, he could live in Alaska and sell fur to to bears and ice cubes to Eskimos. I mean, he sold I think three or four houses the weekend he was with us, and he wasn't even there. He just, they were his houses. I'm like, nobody's selling any houses right now. How in the world can you be doing that? So my point in all that is like some people have opportunity and some people don't. And sometimes the opportunities, they come and they go. Everybody's like, well, if I could just be Steve Jobs. Really? Well, what if Apple hadn't rehired Steve Jobs? Like, how would the story have gone? He would just be another washed-up guy that created something once, and then that was the end of him. But he got another opportunity to come back and make history. But a lot of you feel like, man, I'm like Rocky. I'm just trying to go the distance to prove I'm not a bum. And so we have to find contentment in the midst of, okay, where has God placed me in the now? It's great if all, if all the opportunities line up and the intersections come and I can find a job where I'm fully gifted, but sometimes, providentially, that doesn't happen. And we have to be content. And I can tell you that if we're trying to live for what the wor- world is living for, which is, which is babble, making a name for ourselves, and making lots of money, which is the mammon, you know, then we, then we end up like Johnny Manziel in his documentary on Netflix, and he said, I had every single thing that I ever wanted. Johnny Manziel is Johnny football. He won the Heisman Trophy after one year playing football. He's the only player to ever win, I think, the Heisman Trophy as a freshman. And he beat Alabama, Texas A&M, and he rises to stardom, and he goes pro, and he gets drafted in the first round, and this is what he says, because his career just completely fell apart. He said, I had every single thing that I had ever wanted. You have money, you have fame, you're a first-round draft pick battling for a starting quarterback position, and when I got everything that I wanted, I think I was the most empty that I've ever felt inside. If you think that work is gonna be your savior, And then if you just get your dream, you're going to climb that ladder and discover it's propped against nothing. And then it just comes crashing down like it did for Johnny Manziel. What we have to recognize is that God has given us work to do to be a blessing to others. And that needs to be first and foremost. Dorothy Sayers talks about that what's happened, she talks about this essential modern heresy about work. Is She's like, you know, Doctors now practice medicine, not primarily to relieve suffering, suffering, but to make a living. And the cure of the patient is something that happens along the way. She says lawyers accept you know, briefs, not because they have a passion for justice, but because the law is a profession which enables them to live. And when we fall into that trap, now we're moving towards we're just in it for the money. It's no longer a calling, it's just a job. And you can tell the difference. When you're at the hospital and you need a nurse to care for you, you can tell the ones that are doing it for a paycheck and the ones that do it for a calling, the ones that will take care of you and love you and minister to you. And so I would just say to us this morning, let's, we all have to watch out for that, but we also have to repent of ideal jobolatry. Do you know what that is? That's the if only. If I only had that job, then I'd be happy. If I didn't have these administrative deal, 
details if I only could get rid of that, if I only had a different boss, if I could only unload this, if I only had their job, if I only worked in their department, if I was only on their team, if I was only like that. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul sitting around entertaining those kinds of questions while he's, praying, while he's chained to a prison guard in prison for his faith and writing about contentment? Like sometimes God has us providentially hindered. And Paul is, is content. He's praising God because he loves his work that God has given him to do to minister the gospel. And here he is in prison, and he's like, well, I guess my, my, my focus of ministry has, has, has changed, <laughs> you know? And he focuses on these prison guards and begins to, to turn those lemons into lemonade. We have to recognize that we are living in a fallen world, and there are thorns and there are thistles that come with the food. So Genesis 3.18 says that now there's going to be thorns and, and thistles will come out of the ground, but you will still eat. You'll eat the plants of the field. And the idea is that work is going to have this interesting mix now of frustration and fulfillment. And that's built into that, young people. You need to understand that, that work is going to be frustrating as well as fulfilling. And we live in that tension. But we are trying to minister and bring about his purposes and his good will towards others in the sphere that he has placed us. And lastly, in conclusion, I would just say, until we found our rest in the Lord, we are going to be looking for work to be our Savior. We're going to try to find our identity, and we'll tend to overwork, particularly in this area, by finding our approval from other people or just working all the time. There's an illustration that Keller gives in the book where he talks about this um, woman who had finished her residency. She was a young doctor working at New York City Hospital. She was friends with a doctor who was a few years ahead of her who was pregnant with her second child. And she said, do you know what I love most about being pregnant? The older doctor said to her friend one day, I love being pregnant because it's the only time where I feel productive all the time. Even when I'm sleeping, I'm doing something. And it struck the young MD that her friend based her self-regard so completely on productivity that she seemed relieved to finally find a task she could do incessantly. And for many of us, if we're thinking like that, what happens? We're going to be exhausted. We have to know that it is finished. It is finished. Jesus' words from the cross are paid in full. It's finished. He has accomplished our salvation for us and we could never do enough good works good deeds we would always be on the treadmill of doing 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 but now we can say it's done and you rest in jesus and now we go and do work not because we're trying to earn god's favor but because we already have it and so come afresh to him this morning as we come to the table and we flee the bread of anxious toil, we flee the bread of idleness, and we come to the bread of life. And I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to pray not just for missionaries, but I'm going to pray for you in your different spheres of ministry. So let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful, Lord, to be children of God and your representatives in this world. We ask that you would forgive us, Lord, but we have fallen in so many ways, both in our actions, our attitudes, things that we've said and things that we have done that have not represented you well. Have mercy on us and forgive us. Forgive us where we've been lazy and forgive us, Lord, for striving and overworking to the neglect of other areas like 
family, and church. Lord, we ask that you'd bring proper perspective to us from this word today. And Father, we just want to lift up in our church those that work in the the medical fields, those that work in hospitals and assisted livings and rehab centers and the public schools and the government and the military, those that you've placed in technology and in the realms of science in this area. We lift up accountants, lawyers, those working in finance, real estate, and those that are retired. And pray that, Lord, for all of us that we would cultivate and keep protect in our neighborhoods and where you've placed us with our families, children, grandchildren. And Father, we do lift up some of the needs right now in our church. Lord, we think particularly of Frank and Anna Nolasco and this terrible loss of Nathan. And we just plead for them today that you would draw near to them and pray that we would help them as they weather this incredible storm. Be with them in the weeks to come. We pray you minister your grace and your love to them. Father, we lift up Bob Brown, who's over at uh, MedStar, uh, Montgomery and Olney. We ask that you bring healing to his body uh, from diverticulitis and his perforation. We lift him up. We pray for Chris Marcantonio, as he looks like he will have to have surgery in a few weeks. We pray you continue to heal his body and that you would use that surgery as well to bring complete healing to him. We lift up Cindy Webb's mother, Barbara, at Frederick Memorial Hospital, suffering from what appears to be some kind of mini-stroke. We pray for Cindy as she ministers to her, give her strength. Father, we continue to pray for those who are grieving in our body. Think of Jeannie, in particular, this day, and Leslie. Watch over and take care of them and minister your grace to them and even through us. We think of those dealing with chronic pain, Phyllis, Rob Brinson's mother. Pray for Tom Rushton that he would bear up well with his affliction. And Father, in all the things where you've placed us, we pray that we would be like the Apostle Paul and content and wherever you've placed us in weakness and in prosperity. We ask that you would be our all in all, for we ask in your name. Amen.